Welcome to the Mere Catholicity Podcast, pursuing ecumenism through theological discussions and dialogues. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mere Catholicity Podcast. I am your host, as always, Jonah Saller. For those who are new to the podcast or are interested in supporting the podcast, there is a link below that you can click that'll take you to my Locals page. On there, you will join with a community of Christians who are striving together to become rooted in a deeper Catholicity together. So if that's of interest to you, you can join for free or you could support the podcast that way. With that being said, I'd like to introduce my guest today. I'm honored to be joined by Father Timothy Matkin. Um, he is a priest within the Diocese of Fort Worth, um, and I am very grateful to be able to discuss with him all things Anglican, especially as it relates to Anglo-Catholicism and its existence within the Anglican Church in North America. Um, before we get into it, though, uh, Father, Father Matkin, would you just be able to give an introduction to who you are, uh, what you do, maybe a little bit of your story into uh, Anglicanism, how, how, you, how you ended up where you are today? Well, sure. To start out with where I ended up, I'm the rector of St. Francis Anglican Church in Dallas, and I've been here since 2016. Uh, we're a fairly uh, recent parish. We were established in the 40s. Uh, we're about to celebrate our 75th anniversary next year. Wow. And um, we're in the city of Dallas with the Diocese of Fort Worth. The way that worked out is that the parish, there were two parishes that left the Diocese of Dallas to become uh, members of Fort Worth in 2009 when the ACNA formed. There were some, I think there were six total congregations that left the Diocese of Dallas around the same time. Uh, only two of us went uh, to Fort Worth, others went to various places, the wind, the most famous, I guess, being a, a Christchurch in Plano. As far as my own story, uh, I started out uh, young. And uh, I was born in 75, 1975, back in the late 1900s. And um, I grew up Baptist, uh, was born in Shreveport, Louisiana, lived there until I was uh, 13. I uh, went to First Baptist Church. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. We would um, attend, um, you know, sort of two-thirds of the time, I guess, you know, two or three Sundays on, Sunday off, two or three Sundays on, that kind of thing. Um and uh, my parents had actually, I think, if not met at that church, at least gotten to know each other very well at that church. Um, so I had kind of both sides of the family there, a long connection to it. I was baptized at age 10, and uh, it was my own conversion experience was uh, really just sort of like come to the realization of what am I waiting for? Um, mm. Of course, in the Baptist tradition, you got to make the decision for yourself. And um, so I just thought, uh, what am I putting this off for? Let's, let's, let's do it. I'm not expecting to change my mind about anything. Um, I had always been a person of faith as far back as I can remember. That was instilled to me as a child. And, and as I grew to think about things, uh, it resonated and made sense. Um, so I was baptized. And one of the unique things about uh, that experience is that I can remember my baptism. Mm. And uh, one of the things that I remember about it was how warm the water was. Um, <laughs> and because uh, I expected it to be, you know, rather chilly and I'm kind of bracing for it. But then I put my first foot in there and I'm like, oh, this is nice. I might, might want to stay <laughs> up here for a while. This is pretty good. But um, my parents uh, divorced when I was, I don't recall, like eight or so. Um, mm maybe a little older. Anyway, my uh, father ended up uh, moving out of town. Uh, we, my, I have a sister. We live with my mom. We ended up moving across the country to Seattle um, or that area. Uh, she had a friend in nursing school who uh, had moved up there and she went to check it out and uh, found a great job that she was interested in. So we packed up and drove up there. Not a lot of the Southern Baptist churches in the Seattle area. Um, we were attending one for a while. There was quite a drive, but we found a non-denominational church uh, much closer, um, and we started going there. It's basically the same thing, just didn't have the B word on the 
sign on the sure on yep. the building. And uh, I began to be more active, especially um, you know as I got older and I could drive myself and that kind of thing. Um, spending a lot of time in youth group, I actually even took a little part-time job after school as the custodian there. And so I got to know the staff very well and things like that. Now, back when I was, I don't know, maybe it was around the time of my baptism, I was like 10 or so, I had promised myself that I would read through the Bible. Hmm. So I'm like, I'm just going to start on page one, Genesis 1, and a little bit every night, keep on going. Doesn't matter if anything sticks. If I don't understand anything, I'm just keep on keeping on. It's a big book. I'll pick up some things somewhere along the line. <laughs> so by the time I get into high school, I've actually moved to the New Testament. <laughs> and so I'm picking up speed, picking up ability, picking up interest, um, even sometimes kind of going back and rereading things that I've you know, mm. gone past before. Uh, I'm also getting to know different people of different backgrounds. So I kind of grew up in the Bible Belt. Um, And so, you know, the culture is Christian, as it were. One illustration of that is that I came back down south, well, to Texas to go to Baylor. But I remember in my dorm, there were some guys who would get up and on Sunday morning they would put on a tie um, when they went to go eat in the lunchroom because they didn't want to look like. They hadn't gone to church. So that's a, I thought that was a good illustration of the, the Christianness, it phony or not, of the culture. But there was nothing yeah. like that in Seattle. I mean, if you mm. if you bothered to tell someone you were a Christian, what it meant was you were your behind was in church every Sunday and you were probably doing things during the week. Mm. And I was one of those. And these things started to play one off the other. So I'm reading things in the in the New Testament that are familiar, but yet at the same time new things I hadn't quite caught before or um, had glossed over. Um, my impression of some of the sermons I had heard was um, a handful of proof texts and uh, kind of not really giving us the full picture. And so I'm getting to know people of different backgrounds. I'm reading the Bible. And so I'm like, well, the Bible, what it says on the page in black and white are things like baptismal regeneration. Yeah. I mean, it's just right there. How can you ignore that? And it it seems to say things like the real presence. And so before long, I'm like, I guess I'm going to have to do some church shopping. Um, which was I, I took I sort of took my time and and went deliberately about it uh, because I had experienced a, a sense of vocation since I was very young. Um, I was one of those kids that played church. I even have a photo of me. Um, of course, I was playing the Baptist pastor um, behind a little nightstand or something that's my pulpit, you know. And I've got my probably picture Bible there on the on the top of it. <clears throat> So that 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 was there early, and then I kind of dismissed it because, to me and my perspective as a child, it's like okay, there's there's one of him, and there's a thousand of us. It kind of sounds like the kid who wants to be the quarterback of his favorite football team when he mm. grows up, and it's not really realistic. So I kind of dismissed it, and then you know looked into other things. Uh, but then when I learned that wasn't so unrealistic, it was always there, and so I kind of came back to that. And uh, so by the time I got into high school, um, I was pretty well set that I had some kind of vocation. Mm. And uh, so I ended up uh, visiting a lot of different churches. I uh, I've always been a fan of organ music, and there was a local Lutheran church, ELCA, um, in uh, uh, Bellevue that uh, was installing a new instrument, and they had a dedicatory recital. And so I went to that, and uh, I'd also gone to the St. Mark's Cathedral, the Episcopal Cathedral downtown, um, for their organ recitals. And um, I ended up coming back to church, to the Lutheran church, and um, taking their um, membership class, and and uh, a lot of that really resonated. And so I, I joined, basically, um, 
I don't know, around a semester left of high, high school. Um, so I was kind of on the way out the door, but I figured this is where I was headed. But I was still on a journey. And uh, when I got to Baylor, that's where I went to college. My, my parents had gone there. Um, my grandparents lived there um, in Waco. Uh, didn't really have any desire to go anywhere, anywhere else. Uh, so that's where I went. And I was part of the Lutheran student group there. And I remember asking our chaplain one time, so where is our cathedral? And he's like, well, we don't really have a cathedral. I said, well, we have a bishop. You know, isn't his home church the cathedral? And so that's why I learned about Lutheran bishops are kind of not really bishops in the historic sense, although they've, you know, tried to bring in um, mm -hmm. historic succession. But so that kind of opened another door to investigating all about, you know, apostolic succession and what is the meaning of ordination and all that kind of stuff. And I had visited, of course, uh, St. Mark's in Seattle and, and uh, maybe one or two other Episcopal churches. Um, I was sort of guided by my overall impression of the Episcopal church as uh, you know, a bunch of crazy lefties. And so I didn't really give it too much credence. But then when I got down to Texas and my uh, on-the-ground experience was there are sane Episcopalians uh, who, you know, believe the Christian faith and, and are Orthodox, that there's still those around. Um, I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's not so unreasonable. And really when I, um, I didn't have a sense of that sort of overall just force of the universe pressing down upon you, this is where you belong until I walked into, I, I guess, probably St. Albans Episcopal Church, or, or mm. one of the Episcopal churches down there. And uh, everywhere else, uh, it was sort of like either a nothing, or, no, this is, not, this is a fine place, but this is not where I want you. Um, and so I was confirmed um, my first year at Baylor, and um, the, the church in Waco was right on the diocesan border between the Diocese of Texas and the Diocese of Fort Worth. And um, I was thinking about after graduation, and it's like, I, did, I don't really want to live in Houston. Really, hmm. That's not where I want to end up down there. My, my whole orientation was much more directed northward toward Dallas, Fort Worth, something like that. And so there was a couple of fellow students who kind of drove across the border and went to this little country parish uh, called Our Lady of the Lake in Laguna Park, which is a little uh, lakeside town. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try that and see how that works. And um, it was just home immediately, and, and everybody kind of swarmed around me and made me feel like a part of the family. Mm -hmm. And um, so I pursued the ordination process up there. I had gone to a uh, kind of vocational discovery day down in Houston uh, before, but that's about as far as I got along that line there. And I thought, well, if this is God's will, then, you know, doors will open and things will fall into place. And doors opened and everything fell into place and um, speedily went right through. I was the first young uh, aspirant that they had had in quite a while. And um, Bishop Eicher was the new... Bishop, he had come on, I think he was consecrated in 1994, which is the year that I was uh, confirmed. <clears throat> and I was the first person that he had start the process. Everybody else had started under Bishop Pope, and, and he inherited them wherever they were along the way. And so he, um, we were thinking about, well, what about coming out of college, um, going to seminary after that, Bishop Pope had had kind of a rule of thumb, I want you to wait two years between college and seminary uh, for somebody just coming out of college. So, you know, something else comes along, you, you, you found where you belong. But if, it, if it's really for you, then you'll stick with it and you'll come back. Um, so I was kind of the test case. So we, with mm. Bishop Iker said, well, how about one year? And so we tried that. And then just because of the scheduling of like when I had to renew my lease and when they were having an admission process and stuff, it ended up being two years. But my test case uh, rendered the verdict that after that, they just had 
people go straight through. They, they mm. didn't say take a year or two off. They said, just go straight through. Um, and so I went to Neshota House. Um, at, at that time, that's basically the only place they were sending people were Neshota. Almost everybody went there. Uh, I think you could, go, you could go to Trinity if you wanted to. Uh, or um, I also went to visit St. Stephen's House in Oxford. Okay. And, and that was uh, a good visit. I, I, I kind of liked it there. Um, it, it would have been a challenge, but the biggest challenge was they, as far as I could figure out, and this is kind of, you know, very early internet days, they weren't approved by the U.S. government for student-backed loans. And I so I couldn't figure out how I was going to put that together. So um, I ended up just staying stateside. There you go. It probably worked out for the best, too, um, because I had met my future wife <laughs> shortly before that. And uh, so we got married uh, two days after graduation in the seminary chapel. And that was, I think, the first time they had had that there in quite a while as well. So I was um, ordained in Fort Worth at All Saints Episcopal Church and served a curacy there two years. And then I went over to Arlington in the mid-cities at St. Albans, and I was there for five years. And then I was out in the country uh, at a little three-point mission in Comanche and Dublin and, for a while, Hamilton uh, for seven years. And then I came here, and now I've been here for seven years. So that is my story. So you, you had this process of kind of moving from Baptist to kind of into the Lutheran world and then into the Episcopal world. Was there ever a time for you where Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy were live options that you that you considered? Uh, not really Orthodoxy, um, primarily, I guess, because of lack of awareness. Maybe um, I mean I'm, I'm delving into a lot of books, and I'm reading a whole lot, and I'm some. Uh, so it would have been something that I'd heard about, but um, just not really had any firsthand experience of. So no kind of innate attraction to. I, I think I, when I was in college and would visit home, I think I did once or twice visit an Orthodox church, and it was up there, because I remember the building was very curious. It was, they might have been in a shared use facility or something like that, because the, the iconostasis was just a series of placards that were set up. Um, so it was all kind of very open, but you could sort of see where it was supposed to be. But you know, the, there was nothing really hidden from you. Anyway, um, so orthodoxy wasn't really a thing that came across my, my radar very much. Uh, as far as Roman Catholicism, I, um, I, I did go to a Catholic church fairly regularly for a while, and I did end up meeting with uh, the vocations director of the Archdiocese of Seattle uh, briefly. Um, and that's about as far as that went. Um, I. I had mentioned earlier about, you know, this kind of sense of the universe, you know, hmm. you belong here or you don't belong here. And um, my consistent experience in Roman Catholic parishes was, you just don't belong here. This is not where I want you. Not that this is bad, that, you know, this is a wicked place or something like that. And it's the kind of thing where everything looked good on paper, but then you walk into the church and you're like, I just, I'm not supposed to be here. And I, that's all I can figure out. So that was part of my discernment process. And, and when I finally got to the place where, like, um, like Brigham Young, this is, this is the place. <laughs> this is my salt lake. Mm. Then that was the Episcopal Church. Maybe that's not mm. a good illustration. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's cool, though. I, I think that there's... That, that's sometimes a neglected aspect. So sometimes we're we're so concerned with this idea of does it make intellectual sense? Can I wrap my head around it? That we do forget that there is there is a real sense in which the Holy Spirit does reveal to us where where He wants us in His in in His one Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. I think that that's been my experience with with Anglicanism as well as. I went to Orthodoxy, I went to Rome, and I just did not feel that settled feeling in my spirit like I do within the Anglican world. Um, so maybe the, the next point that, that we can move to, um, you are in a very Anglo-Catholic diocese, um, and that's, 
that's in my kind of realm of Anglicanism as well as the more Anglo-Catholic side. Um, what is a brief history of the English church? Because I think a lot of people, especially from the outside, you kind of have two, two sides of the equation. Either you have the kind of polemical attack from Rome, which is basically King Henry wanted a divorce. That's where your church has its roots. Or you have yeah. kind of the more reform side, which is basically, again, still in the time of the Reformation, as though that was the beginning of the English church. But Anglo-Catholics would approach the way in which English church history and Anglo-Catholicism plays out. So if you would just give a brief introduction to English history. Yeah, of course, the, nobody exactly knows the origins of the um, existence of Christianity in Britain, um, but it certainly most likely goes back to the first century. Um, the feeling generally is that it was, you know, brought there perhaps by merchants just along the routes of trade and travel. Uh, there are some legends um, about Joseph of Arimathea bringing, um, you know, the 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 faith and I guess the grail to Glastonbury or something like that. I, I don't know that anybody takes that historically, seriously. Um, and I forget exactly that. I think the Orthodox have a legend about a, one of the 70 uh, making his way to Britain. But certainly um, by the first or second century, there's a church there, there are Christians there, and uh, very slowly, <clears throat> shortly thereafter, there are bishops. We know at the uh, Council of Arles, I think, in the 200s, there are some bishops present from Britain. Uh, and the church seems to kind of struggle there. Um, it has, uh, of course, the, the island is all um, broken up into pieces, little fiefdoms, kingdoms, and there's different people. I mean, we, we tend to think of like Anglo-Saxons as a people. Well, there's Angles and there's Saxons, <clears throat> and they were trying to kill each other. And then the Jews right. were trying to kill both of them. And, you know, all of these things get meshed together. But we have to remember that everything was pretty divided. And so it, it, it struggled in the early days. Um, and then in the time of Pope Gregory the Great, um, he sees some British slaves and some Angles. And uh, he's fascinated because they look so different from, you know, the Italians all around him with their dark hair. And uh, there's this tall blonde fellows. Who are, who are those people over there? And they said, Holy Father, those are Angles. Well, it looks to me like they're angels. We need to send some people to go evangelize them and make sure that they're a part of the fold. And so he, Gregory is a Benedictine, so he sends one of his own Benedictine people. And I, one wonders if perhaps he uh, wanted to kind of keep that in-house, or, or maybe the Benedictines were his most trusted uh, servants. Who knows? Anyway, he sends Augustine. And it's not the Augustine that you always hear about. So when people quote from Augustine, it's the other one, the one of Hippo, the one in North Africa. Uh, as far as I'm aware, we don't have any writings from this Augustine that went to Canterbury. But he goes there with his um, band of merry men, and they um, evangelize uh, the, the uh, country, the nation, state of Kent. Um, and so Kent Burberry is the little... Uh, place there where they established their first churches, they discover that there is already a church there. Uh, some places it's, you know, long gone and kind of in ruins. And in some places it's still around. And as the church grows and expands uh, across the island, they begin to interact. And, and tensions arise from time to time. They, they live generally in peace, but they're very different the way they're structured. So the the, I don't know how to describe it, the, the, the indigenous British church is a lot more loose. Of course, the Roman mindset likes everything nice and neat and in order and organized. And, and so they have the parish system and the diocese system and everything is laid out on a map. And, and um, it, in, in a sense, looking at in hindsight, uh, the indigenous British church didn't stand a chance of being the dominant form of Christianity. Uh, because when you have people who have a plan and are well-organized, there's no stopping them. So the right. really critical breaking point is at the Synod of Whitby, presided over by the Abbess Hilda in uh, 663. And so it's decided that they would follow Roman customs 
um, about organization, about uh, the dating of Easter, um, and that the realm would be, of course, under the jurisdiction of the Pope, uh, because it was the Pope who sent Augustine there in the first place. And I've always found it unique or fascinating that um, the sort of sign of unity among Anglicans is the Roman missionary to England. And so like in the crest of Canterbury, you have the pallium. What is the pallium? Well, it's a stole-like thing, but it's not a stole, but it's this thing that's given by the Pope to archbishops as a sign of the jurisdiction that he delegates to them. Um, mm. So we do have this kind of uh, inherent Roman connection that goes back to our roots and that has served as a sign of our unity, even when we have difficulty with unity with the, the Holy Father in Rome himself. And that was something that, of course, in the, in the days before uh, modern communications and stuff, it, it wasn't too difficult to be in communion with somebody uh, on the other side of the continent that you never saw anyway. You just sort of like nodded your assent and said, that's great. Um, but then when, um, when structures come into play and when people start conversing back and forth, there can be rough spots here and there. So there was a bit of a rough spot in England in uh, the 1200s. So a confrontation arose between uh, King John and, uh, let's see, Pope Innocent III, uh, who was very, uh, he, you know, he is one of the, the significant popes of the whole span of church history, Innocent III. And uh, King John is, is kind of a turning point in English history, because I think that's when they come up with Magna Carta. And so there's a time when uh, there's a disputation of the rights of the church, uh, and as well as there's disputation of the rights of the local nobles. And so England is put under an interdict uh, for five years. So basically mm -hmm. the whole island is excommunicated for five years. And I don't know historically how they responded to that, what they did. Did they ignore it? Um, did they abide by it? Um, I don't know. I, I would be curious to find out. Mm. Anyway, they patched things up and put things back together. And then good relations were disrupted again, of course, under Henry VIII. Uh, a lot of people uh, had the wrong impression that he wanted a divorce, and so he started his own church so he could get one. That's not exactly right. So he wanted an annulment. Uh, the, one of the difficulties is, is that back then they used the word divorce like we would use the word separation. So divorce didn't necessarily mean divorce, as it were. Uh, there was no con in fact, there was no concept that the you could dissolve a valid sacramental marriage. I mean, you think about it. You know, Henry VIII had these six wives. He he kills what was it two or three of them. Um, why does he execute them? Hmm. Because he wants to be done with the marriage. And since there's no possibility of divorce, till death do you part. And so, bye. You know, that's how he ends his right. marriage, by killing his queens. Um, so, you know, if, if you don't believe that they didn't believe in divorce, just consider the facts on the ground here. So anyway, um, basically, he's, he wants an annulment. Ordinarily, that'd be an easy rubber stamp kind of thing. Um, Wolsey would get, him for it, get it for him. But the problem is, is that, um, what is it, Catherine of Aragon's uncle is the emperor that's breathing down his neck and basically got the Pope hostage over there. So there's no way he can grant that and upset the emperor uh, and fall out of his good graces. So he just tries to stall and just stalls and stalls and stalls, hoping that something will change or, or he'll die or whatever. And uh, so, of course, the clock is ticking and... Um, King Henry loses patience, but also he begins quite understandably to think that God is telling him something, that he's sort of cursed. Because his wife gets pregnant, she has babies, she has sons, and they're stillborn, or they're born horribly deformed and die after a few days. Um, and he's a, he's a scripture scholar himself. He wasn't born and bred to be king. He was supposed to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. So his father wanted to kind of, you know, control both places of power 
you know, with his two sons. Arthur would be king and Henry would be uh, the head of the church, ironically. Um, and so he got tired of, of waiting. He also began to think that maybe God was telling him something that he was cursed. He found in scripture where you're not supposed to marry your brother's wife. And so he's like, well, the Pope cannot dispense from scripture. I mean, the scripture is the supreme law of the church. So the Pope can dispense from the laws that we've made, but not the laws that God has given us. And um, so he's, he says, then that, that dispensation that allowed me to marry Arthur's widow in the first place was inherently invalid. And so he, and also he thinks, well, look, I've got bishops, I've got ecclesiastical courts right here. Why do I have to appeal to another bishop and another continent to get this matter done? We, we can take care of it right here. Of course, he appoints the Boleyn family chaplain as his Archbishop of Canterbury. So the kind of the fix is in. They grant the annulment. They agree with him about the argument about the dispensation to Mary Catherine as being invalid. And so he proceeds going along his way. And the whole thing about him becoming the head of the church, um, people look upon that as a takeover. In, in a sense, it is, but it's, it's a lot more nuanced than most of us realize. So this is a process that takes place over several years about Parliament basically cutting ties in various places. So they, they, they stop ecclesiastical court appeals to Rome. Uh, they stop uh, taxes that go to Rome and th little different things like that. Um, they recognize that basically, as every English or every European monarch uh, is considered sort of like the father of his national family, and he is the the father of the family in the sense that he's the head of of everything that goes on in his realm, and he is the head of the church in his realm, not in the sense of a bishop, but in the sense of a guardian protector overseer in the most generic sense. And so basically that's what he's going for in this new title, head of the church. And so the, uh, the convocation agrees with him. They say, okay, well, sure. Yeah. I mean, we know that's a common thing. You're the head of the church. And they, they put in the, the crucial language so far as the law of Christ allows, you know, don't let it go to your head. Mm -hmm. Remember your whole argument with the Pope, you know, you, you can't dispense with scripture. You can't dispense with divine law. You can't just make things up. You're the custodian. You're the, you're the father figure of your national family. So anyway, the separation uh, comes from then. There's some back and forth with uh, Mary restoring things and, and Elizabeth. Um, ironically, Queen Mary was able to restore communion with Rome by exercising her authority as supreme head of the church in England. <laughs> And so right. she, yeah. she sort of used this kind of Protestant tool to enact or enable um, Catholic communion restoration. It's a, it's a curious thing of history. Mm. Um, and there have been overtures in the, in the past. There was a, a lot of kind of missed opportunities. It's sort of a sad tale of, of the relation between England and Rome over the years. Um, and it, it, it kind of grieves the heart. One, one thing that's uh, curious to me is the, uh, in England, the conservative Orthodox Anglo-Catholic collection of churches there is called the Society. And what is it, is, is it the Society of? It's, it's, it's the Society of St. Um, Hilda and Winifred. And so these are the two saints famous in English history as arguing for the prevalence of Roman customs and authority and so on. And so the, when there was um, kind of the exodus, there have been several sort of exoduses of conservative Anglo-Catholics Anglo in England. And uh, one of these last go-rounds with the formation of the ordinariate, uh, the ones who remained formed the society with, and basically in their name, they gave, gave the impression that it's not a matter of if, it's more a matter of when. That mm. in, in choosing their name, they're like, we recognize that our home is in communion with the Holy See. It's just a matter of, we, we, we don't want to leave people behind. We want to stay together until we can put it together. 
Sure. And, and that that gives me hope. Um, not yeah. a whole lot, but just just a tiny bit of <laughs> patching bit, yeah. things up. Mm. Now, moving moving from that, um, yeah, I, th- I think I think it's right to emphasize the close connection, uh, both historically and even theologically, that England has had with Rome. Um, you're a priest within the ACNA, which is about as diverse a place as as you can find within Anglicanism. You have anything from um, extremely high church Anglo-Catholics to as low church as you could possibly imagine. Um, is there a reason that you have found yourself remaining within um, really a communion that I would say is in impaired communion within itself? Um, as opposed to say, like the continuum, um, what 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 for you is the reason for remaining in the ACNA? Well, sure, and kind of as as you touched on there, um, the Anglican Church in North America is not a church in the fullest sense, and that's just facts on the ground. If you don't have interchangeability of clergy, then you don't have communion. So you know you right. have. A lot of cooperation and partnership and all that kind of stuff, but until you can swap out clergy, you just don't have communion in the fullest sense. And right. those are the facts on the ground. Um, also, as, as you mentioned, there's a lot more diversity in the ACNA than I would have expected or thought or known until I got to know some others and and you know saw others. Uh, Online, there was a church in Florida. I don't remember how I my attention got uh, drawn to it, but uh, I I tuned in their online sermon series, and and basically it's just a you know a guy in like a Izod shirt or something uh, on right. Sunday morning, and yeah. there's on a stage with some band instruments and a plexiglass pulpit, and this is the Anglican Church, and I look at their like what we believe, and well they got the Nicene and Apostles Creed on there, and then they got these other kind of things that I didn't even know what they were, like the Heidelberg Confession or something, and mm-hmm. I don't know, some other things that I forget. <clears throat> so we have a lot of people coming in, too. Um, and it's, it, it's kind of a, a shock, because the, the Episcopal Church was sort of well-known, and it, it is true, it was a lot more homogenous in terms of its churchmanship than what you find like in England. So in England, you, you find the very, very high and very low. But for the most part, you know, over here in America, it was kind of like everybody was medium. Were they extra medium or a little less than medium, you know? Sure. <laughs> and so when you have the ACNA, you have a lot of people coming in from a lot of different places. A lot of them, of course, were from the Episcopal Church, uh, but a lot of them from were from outside. Um, so I, th- I think I heard the figure the other day that, uh, in 2009, uh, when ACNA started, we're talking about like four or 500 congregations. And now we're talking about like 11 or 1200. Um, so there's been a lot of expansion, a lot of people coming in. And because we're so diverse and spread out, there's a real challenge of kind of this cultural assimilation. Um, and, and that remains a real challenge going forward. And, and hope one that that we from our tradition can address and be one who nurtures a common culture and facilitates a common culture. So one of the things I've gotten into recently is um, making tutorials, liturgical tutorials for acolytes, for priests, for daily office officiants, and also uh, chant tutorials. How do you chant all these things? And, 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 And as things come along, I get other ideas about providing educational resource materials. I'll look into that too. But but I think that's um, a challenge for the future is is building a cohesive whole as we as we grow and not um I, I remember when somebody when I first visited uh Neshota House seminary and uh, I had a host student and he was talking about, you know, what's the value of a residential seminary experience? It's like, well, there's a whole lot of stuff that you can get out of a book, out of a book, but there's a whole lot of stuff you just can't, and I can't like mm-hmm. make a list of it for you. It's the kind of thing you just learn from osmosis. 
And yeah. the only way you get it is just by being around it. So how do you learn how to be an Anglican? By being around other Anglicans. Hopefully they know what they're doing, you know, because a lot of times they don't. And, and, and that's yeah. part of why you see a lot of diverse, you know, liturgical practices. It's like, you know, Father so-and-so thought such-and-such was cool, and so he did that. And then the next guy wants to learn what's what, and he just copies the same. And, and nobody kind of gets to the bottom of what is the tradition about these things. So I want right. to have, do what I can, do my part to try to fix that. Yeah. Hmm. Well, what do you think are um, the the primary challenges that face the ACNA right now in terms of it actually being a cohesive communion? I mean, I think the most obvious one would be women's ordination. That that's a huge problem. Um, mm-hmm. Do you see any other issues and and problems that that need to be addressed? And do you see a solution to some of these these major issues? Well, I think basically those two that we've just mentioned are the are the two paramount uh, issues is, is building a common culture and the whole ordination of women thing. Um, because once that's out of the way, then that facilitates a lot of organizational coming together. So I, I don't know for sure, for example, but I, I my suspicion is that the REC is just not not willing to look at assimilating. Um, with the rest of the province until the ordination of women question is resolved. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, to me, it's going to be like Abraham Lincoln talking about the United States before the Civil War. Uh, the thing is half slave and half free, and it just can't continue that way. It's going to be all, it's going to be end up being all one or all the other uh, sooner or later. And, uh, my impression is um, that it will end up being uh, all one, all male priesthood, um, just because that's the way it's been drifting. That's the way it's been going. Um, starting out, you know, as as far as the percentage of female clergy, you're talking about one percent, something like that. Right. And then most of them are not rectors, uh, so they're not really in charge. Um, the new vocations of women. Uh, seems to be declining, um, as far as I've heard. Uh, there are, of course, those who are very enthusiastic for it and pushing for it and so on. Um, they're also in the parts of the church that I'm not even sure will stay with us. So I don't know if C4SO will stick around, um, right. if they'll kind of come mainstream, or if, they're, or if they're too kind of locked into their own outlook and are not you know, walking alongside us, but not really one of us, and then Sort of like those two parishes that left recently will sort of look around and say, "This, you people are not one of us. I'm not one of you. Let's go our separate ways. Right. So that may happen. Yeah. Who knows? Um, I know, for example, with the Diocese of Fort Worth, um, we hosted the organizational um, assembly in 2009 at our cathedral. And um, so we were intimately involved in the formation of the province. Um, but also aware that this was a problem from the beginning that needed to be resolved. And so when, when it came time to sort of join ourselves, um, we didn't make it a part of our canons nor a part of our constitution. So the ACNA does, does not show up anywhere in our legal documents. Uh, mm. All we did was we passed a resolution uh, that in very provisional language, uh, said that we uh, accede to the Constitution and canons um, for the time being. And I forget exactly how it was worded, but it, it was all in very provisional language. And we did that also because if if not, it, it either would not have passed the clergy or would have just looked bad because of its, you know, barely getting over the, the finish line. Right. So that's that it's, it's an illustration of the status, tenuous status that this uh, issue creates. Hmm. What would you say, especially um, as a priest, to a lot of the younger people um, that are coming into the church that are looking for tradition, liturgy, something with depth and roots to it, but are really seeing 
the the disharmony and disunity that's kind of all throughout um, the Anglican world um, on on matters of significance like ordination and things like that. I think a lot of them will say, well, this is a lost cause. I'm going to either go to Rome or to orthodoxy. Some of the people that I have talked to, their desire to move to Rome and to orthodoxy is a reluctant one that's more out of there's nothing here, so I'm going to go here, and not out of a genuine conviction to become either Roman or Orthodox. So what would you say to these people yeah. in terms of what is the reason to remain Anglican in the <clears throat> current climate and, and state of the church? Well, and I understand uh, the plight of some of those that you mentioned that, um, you know, if you're like, if you're in a place where there is no Anglican presence, traditional or otherwise, um, and you don't feel like God has placed upon you or you've been equipped to start your own church, uh, you know, then what do you do? Um, and we've got to yeah. make the, boast, the, the, the best of our situation wherever we are. And, and I think um, all of us are very understanding and charitable about that kind of thing. Um, like as far as, you know, why I am in the ACNA and not in the continuum, for example, it's just sort of like, this is where my job is, and this is my diocese, and this is what my diocese did. Like if we, um, if it was put before us whether we should join the continuum, I think people would be happy with that. They wouldn't oppose it particularly. Um, we've always had very friendly relations with the continuum. In fact, I remember when I uh, visited my parents one time and I drove down to Portland. There's a wonderful and beautiful Anglo-Catholic parish there in Portland. It's the only reason to live in Portland, um, <laughs> called St. Mark's. And um, when I mentioned people I was from uh, Fort Worth, they were like, oh, oh, you're Bishop Iker, you know? And so, cool. you know, they, they think very highly of us, and it, it, it's appreciated and reciprocated. Um, mm. And there's a lot of issues in, in their unity situation that are basically personality issues and go way back, and, and hopefully they'll be resolved. And um, it, it seems like things are going in that direction. Um, but, you know, there is a lot of brokenness in the church everywhere you look. Um, if you think, you know, the old saying is, if you find the perfect church, don't join it, because then it'll be broken. Um, yeah. The church was broke before I got here, and I have a feeling it's going to be broke once I'm in the ground. Um, and, you know, the Roman church is broke. Uh, the, the Orthodox Eastern churches are broke. Uh, the Anglican churches are broke. Uh, everything's broke. Um, so I think it's a matter, just a matter of being faithful um, wherever mm. you are, uh, what you feel like God has, um, where God has placed you. Um, to me, Anglican tradition, the theological outlook of Anglicanism resonates the most with me. Um, so in against, I, I guess in that sense, I am an Anglican, no matter what church I officially belong to. I have that kind of Benedictine spirituality, that English temperament that Martin Thornton talks about in his book, uh, English mm -hmm. Spirituality. That's a wonderful book to, to read if you're interested in learning about that sort of thing. And so that, that kind of balanced uh, approach, um, moderation, valuing, valuing moderation, um, not being overly, um, like the Roman mindset is very kind of orderly and legalistic and square pegs and round holes notwithstanding. Um, and so they, they have the impulse to kind of nail everything down and, and uh, kind of canonize every doctrine by elevating it to a dogma. Um, but we can appreciate some of that, and we have a lot of that. Uh, we can look to the Orthodox side and see their, their kind of more abstract mysticism and their comfort with um, having things be a little ambiguous. Um, and we can see that in ourselves and resonate with some of that. Um, so we're a lot like both in a lot of ways. I think the, the Anglican tradition is very eclectic. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's true or not, but I remember our music instructor in seminary talking about how our hymnals are like the most eclectic hymnals around. I don't know if that's the case, but it certainly is a very eclectic yeah. collection of music. And that is sort of emblematic of our tradition. 
And, you know, right. of course, the future of Anglicanism is in the heart of Africa and Asia. Um, so it will take on a different look and feel. But there are people down there who resonate with the Anglican English temperament. Um, yeah. Maybe that's part of why the British Empire was so successful over so many years is because um, not just the force of power and will, but um, culturally, so many people resonated with the English yeah. culture and outlook and way of life. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think that's that's the case. And, you know, an another thing, too, that I think is is important, and you can touch on this if, you, if you'd like, um, I think E.L. Maskell says that the church is really on a micro scale found in a bishop over a diocese. And so with that kind of portrait of the fullness of the Catholic Church is right there through the laying on of hands and apostolic succession, I think there can be great encouragement for anybody. If you are in a diocese with a faithful bishop, faithful parishes, even if there's chaos all around, impaired communion, all of that, you have the fullness of the faith right there. So be faithful on that local level. Um, and I think the Diocese of Fort Worth is a good example of that. You're in the ACNA, but you're not necessarily condoning or in full communion with all of the chaotic things and uh, heterodox things that are taking place. And yet you can remain because right there in that diocese under your bishop is, is a faithful expression of the fullness of the faith. Um, so I think that can be an encouragement for a lot of people just to remember that and remember the promise mm -hmm. that in this apostolic succession, Christ promises to be present and in the fullness of truth there. Um, do you have any comments on that? Well, while you're talking, it made me think of another old uh, Anglo-Catholic tradition, which is uh, distrust of bishops. Hmm. Of course, there were so many of them <laughs> were persecuted by bishops. And I remember uh, the story being told about Ronald Knox, uh, who hmm. was a Church of England priest, and then he ended up converting and becoming a Roman Catholic. But he, he had a lot of funny quips. And uh, one of his was, remember that the symbol of a bishop is a crook, and the symbol of an archbishop is a double cross, and uh, that 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 speaks to the not just the Anglican but especially the Anglo-Catholic experience of a distrust of the hierarchy, and also at the same time, kind of a being at home and content with the realization that okay, maybe all our bishops are halfway to being heretical, but. The church will go on. The Lord is still the Lord. Um, he will see us through this. We'll keep the faith where we are. I think like John Keeble said, or something like, uh, you know, if there's one Catholic parish left in all of England, it will be mine. And, uh, you know, if there's one Catholic believer left in all of America, it will be me. you got to kind of take that attitude. I remember yeah. John Broadhurst in one of his uh, Forward in Faith addresses talking about when he was first called to be a bishop in uh, Fulham and the Diocese of London. And he said he, he put on his uh, purple cassock, new one for the first time, and caught a glimpse of himself in the mirror. He said the first thing that came to his mind was, I don't trust you. <laughs> <laughs> and so that, that kind of captures that Anglo-Catholic experience. And we have to be mm. diligent and kind of keep watch on our bishops. I do not trust the bishops of the Anglican Church in North America. But then I don't trust the bishops of any church anywhere either. Um, it's like the whole thing with the, um, the rubric in the prayer book about um, disposing of the precious blood. Um, I, you know, still today, I'm like, oh my, good Lord, what kind of idiots do we have running the church? Because I don't, I don't think they're evil men or anything like that. Uh, they just don't, they acting out of ignorance, they didn't imbibe the tradition, what have you. Um, and so they come out basically sanctioning sacrilege. And uh, mm -hmm. thank the Lord and thank Foley Beach um, for his intervention and um, patching that up. I'm, I'm not really satisfied with the way they changed it. Uh, they just kind of tossed everything to back to the local bishop. But um, at least they got rid of the explicit permission to pour out the precious blood on the ground. Um, right. 
I, yeah. Like uh, Father Robert Monday, my dean in my seminary, pointed out, look, you wouldn't stand for letting the American flag touch the ground. Uh, why would you pour out Jesus's blood on the ground? Right. Yeah. But anyway, that's just yeah. an illustration of don't trust bishops. But also, <laughs> when they come, genuflect before them, kiss their ring, and do whatever they tell you. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good reminder. Yeah. Don't don't trust any man, but trust Christ, the head of his church, and trust that he will preserve it and bring it to completion, um, even with the multiple failures of man throughout all of all of church history. His church will always be guided ultimately into all truth. Um, and well, and Father, revere revere all your fathers in God as you would, you know, one of the apostles or or Christ Himself, because they bear Christ to you. And they will disappoint you. They will yeah. let you down. Um, you will find faults in them because you can find faults in anybody. Um, yeah. But nevertheless, they are a, a means of God giving grace to you and coming to visit and be with you. And so they deserve our special filial uh, devotion. Amen. Yeah. Well, Father, I appreciate your time. I'll, I'll ask you one one final question here, and it's it's kind of a fun question I like to ask at the end, and that is, who have been your greatest influences in terms of church fathers and, and theologians? What what has shaped your your theology and formation? Well, <clears throat> I, I kind of get two sort of divergent answers that come to mind. So, like in terms of quotable quotes. You know, when I'm preaching a sermon, I I like to include as much as possible, at least once in a Sunday message, some reference to some church father, um, just at least to just kind of keep us in touch with, look, we're not making all this stuff up. This is not some new idea that I've come up with, like Benny Hinn, where there's something new and exciting in church. No, this is the same old song. And so it's kind of a reminder of that. Um, And as far as like good quotable quotes, Pretty much every time I quote somebody, it's like Augustine or Chrysostom. Those are probably yeah. the most ones I do. Ambrose and, and Leo would be the, the second most. Um, but as far as um, church fathers that, that sort of related to me early on and, and my conversion process of coming into the, the fullness of the Catholic faith and preparing myself for confirmation and reading a bunch of books, um, Ignatius of Antioch, I think, stands out as as one of the best resources. Um, and then also Polycarp uh, kind of stands out as being um, almost like a fatherly mentor kind of walking you through mm-hmm. the whole thing. Um, it's mm-hmm. hard not to love Polycarp, this, this old man who just wants nothing more than to get himself martyred. <laughs> and I think, is, is, isn't he the one who... Uh, I forget if it's Polycarp or who it is that that they they're putting him to death and they um, they throw him on the fire and he's bleeding and like his blood puts out the fire and like frustrates them to right in their task of putting him to death. I'm, I forget if that's the story or not. Anyway, um, but yeah. Polycarp and and Ignatius um, because Ignatius was like he was talking about the things that I was asking questions about at the time. And uh, there's a lot of cases where that happens. There's a good book um, called A Dictionary of Early Church Fathers or something like that uh, that I've used uh, a lot. Uh, it said it was um, the, the priest who wrote it, uh, David Burkhot, B-E-R-C-O-T. You can find it on Amazon. It's that The Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs. Um, okay. It says he's an Anglican priest somewhere in Texas. I've never heard of him. I can't find him, track him down. So I don't know who he is or where he is now, but I uh, appreciate his work very much. Hmm. Well, very cool. Well, Father, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I know that you are relatively active on on media as well, and you put out different reflections and things like that. So if, if people are looking to, to follow your work and get in touch with, with you, uh, where, where can they find you? Well, sure. Of course, my parish website is stfrancisdallas.org, or you can just Google St. Francis Dallas. 
Um, I have a YouTube channel, and so I, of course, post uh, sermons there and uh, church services, and we do a Wednesday lectionary Bible study. So I just did one this morning on the upcoming Sunday readings. Uh, so we post those there. Um, and also I started a podcast. I call it Matins just because I do it in the morning. And that's usually about once a week, uh, depending on my schedule. And uh, I'm going through a series this uh, year about um, how to be an Anglo-Catholic. So just kind of the, mm. the practical nuts and bolts and, and the rhyme and reason of it all. And so you can find my YouTube channel. You can just search my name, Timothy Matkin. It's like Fr Timothy Matkin dash St. Francis Dallas or something like that. I just put both in the name. So if you're looking for either, you can find it. And I do have um, my uh, matins and sermons on Apple and Spotify audio podcast. All right. Well, wonderful. Oh, and if you well, want to send me an email, if you want to send me an email, it's uh, frmatkin at priest.com. There we go. Well, Father, thank you very much. This was an enjoyable conversation. Uh, get to know you a little bit better and get to know the, the Anglo-Catholic tradition within the ACNA. Thank you very much for your time. Well, it's been a blessing to me, and I hope to see you in the flesh someday. <laughs>